Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal. Dose to Leadership Podcast, episode 146. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up in all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from. You can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, I'm so thrilled to have on my show today Tom Rath. He's considered one of the most influential authors of the last decade whose books and studies have focused on the role of human behavior in health, business, and economics. He's written several international bestsellers, including the number one New York Times bestseller, how Full Is Your Bucket? In 2012, his book, Strength Finder 2.0, was the top-selling nonfiction book worldwide. His most recent New York Times bestsellers are Strengths-Based Leadership and Well-Being, The Five Essential Elements. In total, his books have sold more than 5 million copies and have made more than 250 appearances on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. He serves as a senior scientist and advisor to Gallup, where he previously spent 13 years leading the organization's work on employee engagement, strengths, and well-being. He also served as vice chairman of the VHL Cancer Research Organization and has earned degrees from the University of Michigan and the University of Pennsylvania, where he's a guest lecturer. He and his wife, Ashley, and their two kids live in Arlington, Virginia. Tom, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Thanks so much. It's good to be speaking with you. Oh, it's been a long time coming. We've uh, gone back and forth with, with your folks trying to get the, this one scheduled, and I'm so happy to finally have you here. I mean, what a, a collection for such a young man. I mean, I, I don't even know where to start with you, to be quite honest. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got so passionate about your studies and, and particularly about leadership. Yeah, you know, I've been, uh, I kind of come from a background of uh, research and technology was where I started off. And uh, one of the early projects I was involved with at Gallup was the creation of the StrengthsFinder instrument. I was kind of the project manager and IT guy on it and bringing a lot of people together to say, 
how can we create some type of an online application that enables people to learn a little bit more about their natural talents so they can be better leaders or teachers or students or parents. And um, that got me into a lot of the work around studying human behavior initially. And then over the years, that's kind of evolved to uh, most recently I've been studying uh, health and well-being from an organizational standpoint and how leaders in particular can play a much bigger role in not only improving the health and well-being of their uh, direct reports, but of an entire organization and of the communities they reside in and the customers and clients that they serve as well. And one of my most recent observations in that space has been that I think there's kind of a new currency emerging for the influence of leadership where leaders can really prove they're making a difference in people's lives in a way that was much more difficult to quantify just a generation ago. So what are what are the, what are some of those those findings that you find out? What can we do differently? Yeah, when you think about the role leaders play, obviously there's been a big conversation for the last decade. It's, I, I would say it's been as hot as it's ever been around employee engagement. And one of the things we've learned from all that research on employee engagement is that there's nothing that accounts for more of the variance in whether someone's engaged on the job or not. Nothing covers more of the variance in the relationship with their direct leader or manager in particular. And that's where there's we figured out in workplaces where if you have a really bad manager, not only is that a problem for your um, productivity on the job, but it may be one of the greatest determinants of whether you're in good physical health or not. There are some studies out of the UK suggesting that people who have bosses they've consistently disliked for multiple years could be 33% more likely to uh, have a stroke or a heart attack in particular. And we've, at Gallup, a team of our scientists I worked with was studying this in more of an experimental setting. And we kind of pinged people throughout the day and asked them how engaged they were in their work and what they were doing and who they were with on a little handheld device. And we collected cortisol samples from, they'd spit in a tube, and we analyzed how stressed out people were throughout the day. And one thing you can clearly see is that leadership has more of a direct physiological impact on what's going on inside our bodies every day than I ever would have imagined. And mm. one of our scientists I worked with at Gallup, Jim Harder, he was suggested one day, and we've talked about it a lot since then, that the quality of your manager may be even more important to your physical health than the quality of your physician, which really wow. made me rethink the, the importance and how sacred managing and leading is in organizations today. It's, I think it's up there with a teacher in a classroom or what a parent does with a young person in terms of the incredible impact you can have on another human being's life over time. But I think the big challenge in the modern workplace is we get so busy doing stuff and thinking about processes and meetings and phone calls that a lot of us lose track of the fact that the core purpose of leading is to make a positive contribution to the life of another human being so they can do more. A great point. I mean, I think so many times, you know, and I think that's where the, the – um, being intentional about leadership and understanding the difference between managing and managing processes and and procedures and and everything else, we forget the human element, and that's really where leadership comes into it—the the head and the heart and the love aspect of it, of taking care and and making sure the other human beings you're accountable for are the best that they can be. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, um, yes, you know what? I mean, I it it sounds intuitive what you're saying. It makes perfect sense. I can imagine. I mean, let's look around. I mean, all of the. Um, kind of pop culture about the workplace is all about the bad boss, right? And just how much it can just completely mm-hmm. 
transform and you know ruin your life almost if you're not careful about it. So what can we do if we're kind of stuck in that phase? I mean, it's I, I, I like what you're saying, and as a leader and someone else, like to be more intentional and conscious about becoming uh, more conscious about how I may be influencing and impacting the people I'm accountable for. But what about if you're kind of on the receiving end of that? Are there things that we can do that can kind of help, aside from leaving or quitting, but uh, are there any things that we can do specifically to help you know, increase our or, or improve our status? I think there are things that we can do. I've spent a, a lot of time over the years talking with people who are in those situations and studying some of the data on the topics. And another aspect of employee engagement that is often overlooked is just the importance of having very strong relationships with your colleagues and coworkers. You know, we ask this quirky question of more than 30 million people on Gallup's standard employee engagement survey, and the question was, I have a best friend at work. And it, it sounds odd, why should I have a best friend at work? But when we look at the data in relation to outcomes about productivity, profitability, safety, and the like, if people have a best friend at work, they're seven times as likely to be engaged in their jobs. And if they don't have a best friend at work, the odds of being engaged are just one in 12. Wow. So we've got a, we've got a responsibility to say, even if you're in a job where you're getting paid in many cases for production and hours, building strong relationships is everyone's job because if we're going to spend a majority of our waking hours in life doing something that we call a job or paid work, we better have some friends so we can enjoy it in the process. Absolutely. I mean, it makes perfect sense. What I love about your work is this idea, again, of the the intentionality, but also how little things can make a huge difference. That really was kind of the, the, the basis of the, or the, the foundation of Eat, Move, Sleep, which was such a huge um, bestseller. And, uh, that's kind of what you're talking about, that mindset, right? I mean, the little things that we can do that can kind of, you know, certainly change the, the game for us both at work and in our personal lives, right? You know, it is. It's one. It's kind of interesting. I started working on the Heat Move Sleep book you mentioned because when I was uh, 16 years old, so well over two decades ago now, I was diagnosed with a rare disorder that causes cancer to grow all over the body. So right. I, I lost an eye at that age, and ever since then I've have been battling and I'm currently battling pancreatic cancer, kidney cancer in my spine and a host of other things that are basically I have I kind of lost the genetic lottery in terms of I don't have a tumor suppressor that right. 99.9% of people do. And But I bring that up because it's interesting how even in that extreme case of having the ultimate genetic risk for the disease people kind of fear most, it's still not a great motivator for me to pick a healthy salad over a cheeseburger and french fries at lunch today. Right. And it, what is a good motivator, however, is knowing that if I pick the healthy salad, I'll have a lot more energy to play with my three-year-old and my five-year-old at mm. six o'clock tonight instead of being wiped out with a high-fat hangover. <laughs> and so what, what I've learned from some of that work is that even none of us make great decisions because we're thinking 20 or 30 years out in most cases. We make decisions because we either want something in the moment or we want to feel a little better later that same day. And so what I've learned is in any workplace circumstances or if you're thinking about your own kind of behavioral habits, you can make that a lot easier if you connect your decisions each in the moment to short-term incentives instead of those longer-term incentives. So get a little exercise in the morning because research shows you'll just be in a better mood three, six, and 12 hours later. And if you have a big meeting at work or you have a presentation, you'll be a lot sharper if you get just even 20 minutes of vigorous activity in the morning. And that makes it a lot easier to say, hey, I need this for this afternoon, not I need this because I have a family history of heart disease that might 
come back and get me 25 years down the road. Yeah, because it's not tangible. Like you said, I mean, even though you're thinking, even though you know the gravity of the situation, you're right. We're we're present in the moment, and it's hard for us to kind of even project or even put ourselves there. I think you're absolutely right. But looking at that short-term game, I love what you said. I'm not going to pick the cheeseburger. I'm going to pick the salad instead because I want to have more energy to play with my kids. That's something that's real to me right now, and that, that I can see the immediate benefit. And, you know, it's interesting to me how the leaders are often thinking about health. And I, when I talk about well-being, I would say well-being is kind of everything that's important right. from your career to your community to your relationships and your finances. And leaders often think about health and well-being as a risk and a cost. So if you work for a mid- to large-sized company in the United States, you've probably heard the terms health risk appraisal and disease management program. And right. You couldn't pick two sets of terminology that would scare away more employees if you got <laughs> right. people in a room and tried. Right. And the, the challenge is I think leaders need to say, how do we make sure our people have the health and energy they need to be productive and have well-being every day they show up for work in a way that's sustainable? So they're not getting four hours of sleep and coming and falling asleep in afternoon meetings and burning out after six months of working 80 hours a week, how can we build cultures inside organizations of sustainable health and well-being? And one thing I've learned after spending three or four years working with big organizations on that exact topic is that it's the one area I've seen that almost has to be leadership-driven. It's not like the strengths work I've seen where a team of 10 people can get together in one little department and all of a sudden it bubbles up. It's if leaders are not practicing what they preach around wanting their people to be healthier and in better mental shape as well, it, some of those programs to help people be healthier coming out of benefits may even do more harm than good if leaders aren't talking about it in parallel. Yeah. You know, one thing that I've seen at work, and especially in the corporate arena, and um, there's this pressure to perform and, and in the flight test environment that I'm associated with now, I mean, there's there's a lot of long hours um, a lot of delayed gratification because you're looking, like you said, um, at a long-term goal that's sometimes two, three, four years down the road, and sometimes it can just be so overwhelming that that you that you um, you get burned out really easy. And one thing I love what you you did some research and you wrote about is how successful people tend to work in little short um, what's the right word bursts, I guess, is the way you put it. And how that you know a lot of times people think you need to work long hours, but it really it's it's about short little kind of intense focused sessions and then a, and then a nice break, right? Yeah, you know, if you look back at the last 25 to 50 years, we've essentially kind of engineered activity out of our work. And so you have, I mean, I can't explain how many requests I've seen over the years for people who want to print it. It's five feet from their arm instead of 50 feet down the hallway so they can take a few less steps in a given day. And it's, we've got to figure out ways where even if you just get up every 20 minutes, it turns out that's not just good for your physical health to take a quick 30-second break every 20 or 30 minutes. It's good for your creativity and your mental health as well when researchers study that in an experimental setting. And I think the original point you referenced there was a study I talk about in the book, Eat, Move, Sleep, where if you go back to that work of Kay Anders Erickson that has been so widely debated in the workplace about, oh, is it 10,000 hours of practice that matters or natural talent and we could do a whole... Uh, conversation or show just on that topic, but what people missed in that exact same study 
was the fact that he found the top performers across all these professions slept about eight, I think it was eight hours and 20 minutes on average, where the average American sleeps six hours and 58 minutes on average. Hmm. So, you know, I was I grew up in this real hardworking Midwestern culture with family members and mentors I looked up to who were leaders in the community, and the work ethic there always dictated that you were supposed to brag about only needing four hours of sleep because that was a badge of honor. And the last thing I would ever do is admit to the weakness of needing eight hours to feel good. Right. Um, but it, but it turns out that I mean, there's just pretty definitive research on it nowadays that. 95% of us do need seven or eight hours of good sleep in order to be effective in what we're doing each day. I, I agree with you. I mean, and as a pilot, I mean, that's one thing that I'm always battling with, getting up in early hours. And I remember when I worked at American Airlines, they, used, they brought in a sleep expert and told us how to get them the most sleep, especially with different hours, you know, completely dark, a nice cold room, nice heavy warm blanket, all these other things. I got to tell you, I mean, it's so true. If you if I get less than eight hours, it's almost like I'm impaired almost. It's almost like I can't function Normally, and I got to wonder how close, to, you know, when I don't get the right amount of sleep, how close am I to almost being impaired, almost like drinking almost? I mean, I've seen some studies on that. I think you've even written about that too, haven't you, where sometimes lack of sleep is almost the equivalent of, of being drunk? Yeah, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really important leadership question. It's the one topic out of all these areas that nobody's talking about outside of, I mean, there's, there's conversation about needing enough sleep if you're a pilot, as you mentioned, or if you're a surgeon. There, there's there's pretty good research and people are talking about it, bringing experts in like you described. Um, when you look at leaders in retail or pharma or anywhere else, there's absolutely no conversation going on on such an important topic. And the study you just mentioned, there was a, some work suggesting that if you lose four hours of sleep on a given night, that's the equivalent of showing up at work after a six-pack of beer. Oh my. I mean, as you alluded to, I don't, I don't want to certainly don't want a pilot or a surgeon showing up in that state, but I also, <laughs> I don't want someone who's managing a real complex technical project at work showing up at that in that state in the middle of the afternoon, and I don't want the CEO of an organization I work for showing up regularly in that kind of a mental state where he might have a couple good hours in the morning and then is just fried for the rest of the day because he's not taking care of his own health first. That's one of the things that is a little bit paradoxical when you talk about health and well-being and that... You know, so many people who have done a lot in life and have accomplished a lot and are in leadership positions today, they've gotten there by putting everybody else first and putting right. their work first and so forth. But it turns out if you really want to be productive and effective, you kind of need to be selfish in putting your own health first, if for no other reason than to be more effective for other people. That's a great point. I mean, it's the same thing like if from a flying perspective. I mean, when you lose pressurization the oxygen mass come down who do you put it on your kid first or yourself first you put it on mm -hmm. your, you put that's it on yourself that's a perfect metaphor right that's a great point i mean i think what do you say to the critics though and and i know i've i hear people this well we just don't have the time i mean life is so crazy it's so hectic um there's just impossible for me to get eight hours i'm lucky if i get six or five i mean what do you say i mean what intentional choices uh would you present to the critics to try to get them to understand how important it is you know, I think it's one of the things that I've studied a lot over the last five years is that some of these American time use studies and reconstruction, where you ask people to reconstruct their days and what they really spend their time doing. And if you look at the typical day, there are so many things from, I mean, not just things like long commutes that are tougher to move, but the amount of time that people spend sitting around watching television or 
mindlessly web browsing because they're distracted. Oh, where, yeah. I mean, if, if you just cut a little time away from distraction or you peel a little time away from television or social media, it's usually possible to find 30 minutes that you could add to sleep and maybe just try 15 to start with. And it turns out that, I mean, in many cases for people, an extra 30 minutes goes a long ways. It's like an extra 30 minutes of exercise or social time. I mean, every every half hour really does count when you start to add those things up. And then, as you mentioned earlier, when you when they brought a sleep expert in in your uh, flight training at American, they're just sleep's a great place where there are a lot of little tricks like dark rooms, cooler rooms, uh, not using electronics and messaging an hour before bed, which is distracting and suppresses melatonin from the light. There there are tons of little tricks you can do to make your window of sleep more optimal, yes. so you get more REM sleep and more deep sleep as well. Great point. I love that you brought up about. Uh, being intentional about uh, and, and kind of you know, and I never realized this until the more entrepreneurial I became. I get qu- asked this a lot, you know, and like, well, how can you get the podcast done? How can you do this and still work full time? And you got four kids, and I got to tell you, I never realized how much time suck events there were that I was wasting not doing something productive. Um, I kind of made the excuse that it was like, well, I'm just trying to relax after a long hard day. I got to veg out in front of the TV, but that vegging out in front of the TV turned to two to three hours a night, and that's a lot of time. You can get a lot of stuff done in two to three hours, and you don't have to necessarily be away from the family. What I started doing was just doing things inside the same room that everybody was kind of, you know, doing another activity. You know, I worked on the business in the same room. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think I'm, there's a great way to bring a lot of, I mean, social time when you're still interacting with people without just being. The, the, what's interesting to me is when researchers want to study how much people sit, which is one of the big, one of the largest problems systemically in the workplace today, they don't ask people how much they sit because we're not very good at estimating it unless we're wearing a little uh, better job on our device or something. Traditionally, what they've asked about is how much television do you watch in a day because that's a really good proxy for how much sitting and screen time that you right. get. And it, it, in most time budgets of Americans, they've got at least a half hour to pare back between television use and email that's not that productive in social media as well. Where there's, you know, one of the things I've been reading a lot about just in the last couple of weeks is that we've kind of created a culture in across society where it's like sleep. It's a badge of honor to say I'm so busy. I'm busy at work, and I say it all the time. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna personally in the next year try to have some discipline about. You know, substituting any time I'm about to tell someone I'm busy, I should just say, I'm doing a poor job of managing my own time. <laughs> that's actually what I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. I love that. You know, one other thing I really appreciate about your work and one thing you, you highlighted, and it's kind of in that whole strengths-based uh, leadership arena, and it's one thing I'm really passionate about, and it's really kind of an epiphany I had over about four or five years in, in my leadership teaching and coaching. You know, for so much of my life I spent – um, be it in a relationship or myself or, or my kids or anybody else, I always, always trying to fix the weaknesses. And the moment I started shifting my thoughts and, and looking towards, you know, I'm going to focus on my strengths. Um, I think sometimes in leadership we can kind of, and we hear it from our parents and our kids and we tell our kids the same thing, you can be whatever you want to be. Um, but what I love about what you've said is, is kind of like, look, you can't be necessarily everything you want to be. That's not realistic. But you can be something greater than you are right now if you focus on your strengths. And I think that is so critical in leadership that if we focused on the strengths, if we spent 80% of our energy on our strengths, then our weaknesses would become less and less prevalent. What is your What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, you know, one of the, at a leadership level, when I think about what I've learned about strengths, what's most important is to spend a lot more time doubling down on your natural talents and who you already are. But then with a caveat to say, as much as as individuals, leaders should not strive to be well-rounded, they do need well-rounded leadership teams. Right. So that was, that was an important finding from some of the research I looked at that, you know, a guy like me who is traditionally a little more introverted, I need a lot of help at a cocktail party to end up talking to anyone. <laughs> um, if I don't have people around me on a team at work or in my personal life who are a lot better at building and bridging and growing relationships than I am, that turns into a real blind spot and could be a problem for, especially for a leadership team at work. And so there, there are a series of kind of four dominant areas that people need to think about from a leadership standpoint. But that, I'd say that to your point, that's really the second phase where the first phase is coming to that understanding that as a numbers guy, the way I figured it out for myself is from a practicality standpoint, if I were to spend all of my time just trying to be a little bit good at anything or 10 different things, I just wouldn't have time to be great at anything in life. Right. So when you kind of start from that lens as a leader and say, if I'm going to be great or have a company or an organization that's great at something, I need to focus in on what I do well, what we can really do well, and then to make sure you've got the right team around you and to make sure that team around you doesn't just look like clones or people who have the similar personality traits to you. You want people with very diverse personality traits and areas of expertise and skills surrounding you so that they can be a lot better than you ever could be in some of those areas. Yeah, great point. Play to your, play to your strengths, but augment your weaknesses with other diverse people and not necessarily agree with you, but are certainly like-minded like you and just as passionate. Um, I think that is the ultimate challenge of leadership. And, it, and it, if you can get to that point, that's when you really start to transform your organization, your business, your life, if you can surround yourself and develop other like-minded leaders, people that are even better than you. And um, that, to me, it's almost like herding cats, but the the, the cha- because you've got a bunch of entrepreneurial like-minded type leaders in there. But man, if you can harness that power in, into the right direction, that's what really transformed businesses in, the, in, in life, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? Are you still at Gallup? I, I was looking. At, I, did, I didn't get the sense. I knew a while back you'd taken a sabbatical from Gallup, but are you with Gallup now? Yeah, I'm a senior scientist, more of an outside advisor to Gallup right now, so I still do some things in research and partnership with Gallup. But I've been spending most of my time in the last few months here just with uh, universities and business, big businesses around the country trying to figure out how they can build real cultures of health and well-being, starting with leaders instead of the traditional kind of risk programs that are driven out of benefits. I think that um, when I step back, not only looking at health from a personal level and the people I care about, where I mean, we've now got uh, two out of every three people in America are killed by cancer and heart disease, which are largely preventable conditions, maybe 70% of those cases. So at a personal level, but then at a business level, I mean, poor health is breaking companies and our national economy to a degree in a way that's unsustainable right now. So I've been spending most of my time with organizations trying to help them think about how can they build a culture that's sustainable, not only from the cost prevention and helping people to be healthier standpoint, but for the sake of having employees who show up every day with more energy and can be more productive. So what are you doing? How is how is your uh, current battle with your uh, genetic disorder? How How is that going? Pretty good. You know, I, you know, it's interesting. I go in every year and go through all kinds of MRI and CT scans and kind of get a 
a new lease where I don't have to come back for another 12 months. And so far, that continues to be going pretty well and has been um, manageable enough for me. But it also it helps me to refocus on some of these topics and their importance. It's 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 interesting how we get caught up in the workplace today and. I, I mean, entire decades can go by where we're not putting the focus on not only our own health, but kind of the health of the people right around us, our loved ones, our best friends, our colleagues at work that we care about most. So that that was what led me into a lot of this work was I, I had a, three or four colleagues who were about my age uh, pass away in the span of a, a month from cancer and heart disease and realized that it was time to step back and pull a lot of this research together because, as you mentioned early on there, there are so many little things that we can all do to um, both have a better day yet today and set tomorrow up for a good start, but then over time those choices all accumulate and we end up having a, living much longer and better health as a product of those small choices. You know, I think it's, you know, one of my favorite posts that you had is, and it kind of tied in with what we're talking about here, is when you, you talk about your uh, late grandfather, Don Clifton. Tell us a little bit more about uh, your grandfather. Yeah, he was uh, uh, kind of a mentor and best friend of me growing up. And when I, you know, when I was just, it was about eight years old. He helped me to start a little business selling uh, pretzels and popcorn and candy and uh, sweatshirts and stuff under the stairs of a small company he had back in the day. So he was uh, a real mentor to me at a very young age, and then all the way through college. And uh, right when I, it was about right when I got out of college, he'd been. Uh, Work, he'd been working on StrengthsFinder, which I went to work with him on, and getting that started and off the ground. And a few years into the project there, he found out that uh, he had stomach cancer and didn't have that long to live. And so we ended up, he asked me when we were we were flying, I had so much knowledge on cancer by that point already, that we ended up flying around all the top medical centers and putting together a whole binders full of information on how to prevent that. And in the process, he asked me if I'd worked uh, with him on a book around this, a dipper and bucket idea he talked about for a long time, but never really written anything about. And it was he asked me to do that because I'd written him a real long letter about all the things he kind of contributed to my life. And he said he spotted some talent for writing there, which I'd never <laughs> seen, and no teachers had ever seen that either, by the way. Wow. Um, and that's what got me into working on books, where we traveled around and for months intensively, we uh, I listened to him tell stories and wrote down as much as I could and. Uh, we were able to finish the book, which became Helpful as Your Bucket, which was the first book uh, I was involved with uh, just a few months before he passed away. So that was a, kind of a one of the most meaningful, lifelong relationships with not only to the grandfather, but as a mentor that I've had. You know, and he was, he, he had such a remarkable life. I mean, he really was the, uh, the father of all the um, kind of strength-based psychology and, and positive psychology that, that, that uh, really that we've been talking about, right? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's so fun to see the way that just continues to grow and grow and grow year over year, even, I mean, he, it's been about 10 years since he passed away, and the, there are more people uncovering their strengths and learning about what they do well and studying positive psychology today by a factor of 5 or 10 than there were 10 years ago. And, you know, I've been spending a little bit of time lately just thinking about uh, some of the hallmarks of leadership that makes a difference, not only for someone's well-being, but in a bigger sense over time. And my most kind of succinct definition for myself about how leaders make a difference is that they spend time every day working on things that will continue to grow long after they're gone. Yeah. 
And and I think that, I mean, when I look at what he did over a lifetime, I think that's something that I continue to learn from every day and aspire to because you want to make sure that you're chipping away at things right now that aren't just limited to the here and now, but that um, whether you're just gone in a different company, whether you're gone in a different location, or whether you're no longer around, period, that you're doing some things that will make a difference, ideally for several generations or centuries. Well said. I mean, you're standing on his shoulders for sure, and I think you've you've what I'm hearing in your voice and what I've read in your writings about him. I mean, you you realize that you are standing on his shoulders, and and what a great blessing, but also what a great um, uh, obligation, really. That uh, that kind of helps drive what you're doing. I can sense that, and I can see that in in your work. And uh, I usually ask everybody on this show early on. Um, who was your greatest mentor, your influencer? Obviously, uh, your grandfather, Don Clifton, if I had to guess, was probably that man, right? Yeah, he was. And that's, and I think you're, you're right. That, I mean, the other thing I'm, I'm learning as I get older is that it's, I think it, we've got to all embrace how we can continue to build on the shoulders of yep. a lot of good thinkers. I mean, what I, the first thing I remember growing up from Don was just his, his uh, library and kind of office den that he worked in. We just, layered with rows and rows and rows of books and I that, I grew up admiring that as a kid and tried to read everything I could starting in kindergarten and, mm-hmm. um, and now I still spend I mean that's my primary hobby is just reading everything I can get my hands on and, and it was interesting for me to look at the way he clearly admired and all of his work stood on the shoulders of a lot of giants in psychology and business in particular uh, when I read his kind of handwritten notes about the people he admired and what he learned and so I think if we can all just continue to build on those things over time, it starts a cycle there where we're having a little bit of influence on a much wider audience, hopefully for a long time to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gosh, Tom, what what a fun conversation. I'm so glad to have met you. Um, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? Yeah, the my main uh, website is tomrath.org, and we talked a little bit about Eat, Move, Sleep. There's a, on eatmovesleep.org, there's a, free assessment that people can take and get kind of a guide about how they can have more energy and be more productive each day in whatever work that they do. And um, I'd recommend for listeners to check that out if they're interested in some of the topics we were covering as well. Perfect. I mean, the books, I mean, there's so many of them. Eat, Moose, Sleep, Strengths Finder, Strengths-Based Leadership, How Full Is Your Bucket, Well-Being, The Five Essential Elements. you got a How Full Is Your Bucket for Kids and the book Vital Friends, The People You Can't Afford to Live Without. I mean, you're just a wealth of... Um, Great knowledge and resource for leaders all out there, Tom, and I'm so appreciative of, of all the work that you're doing, and, and I look forward to work coming from you for years to come. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure talking to you today. All right, Tom, we'll talk to you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.